Well, I thought I'd start off this morning by uh, sharing a little bit of my story. Uh, I haven't really shared a lot about me here publicly at Stillwater Bible, uh, like in this kind of setting. Uh, But I have what doctors call a little bit of a leg problem. And I don't know if you noticed, but I limp. And uh, I was born with this crazy disease. And even crazier than that was the form of the disease that I was born with. And uh, it's just kind of blew up. And the name of my disease is called Trevor's disease. It has nothing to do with Trevor Davenport. Davenport, he's not contagious. Um, and so the disease started in my ankle, and it spread into my knee, and then to my hip, and then to my shoulder, and then my elbow, and then my wrist. And the doctors told my parents, it's going to keep spreading. It's going to go through all my body. And eventually, one day, it's going to be in all my joints, and deforming them, and probably end up in a wheelchair. And the best I know, there's no cure for this disease. Um, And you might say, Eric, I think you're outmatched. Um, There's no cure. But the truth is, there's a lot of things in this life, in this fallen world, that have us outmatched, right? There's all kinds of stuff out there that beat us. There's all kinds of battles that we face, and we think, how are we going to get through it? It could be a marriage that's been secretly dissolving despite best efforts. It could be that scary diagnosis from the doctor. There's all kinds of things that just have us outmatched. So what do we do? What do we do when we're outmatched, outnumbered, when we don't see a scenario for victory, there's no cure, what do we do? We're going to look at Nahum chapter 1 this morning, and I think we're going to see some pretty cool stuff. We're going to see two main sections. The first section, I call it the heavy message of judgment. God's judging Nineveh. But in this section, we're going to see who God is. Who is Yahweh? And in the second section, we're going to see the good message of comfort. The comfort that comes as a result of knowing who our God is. And so, let's see. Like I said earlier, Nahum's not the most uh, read book of the Bible. So here's a little help getting us there, some directions. If you get to Matthew, just turn to the left. Uh, Five books, and you'll be at Nahum. And so if you would, if you haven't already, turn with me there, and we'll start. Let me give you first the outline of the book. The book is short. It's three chapters. First section, I just called it Nineveh's Judgment Declared. And then the rest of the book, Nineveh's Judgment Dealt. And there's all kinds of ways you can break this up, but I just wanted to keep it simple for us here. So let's look at this first section, the heavy message of judgment. Verse 1, the oracle of Nineveh. And oracle in Hebrew is Messiah, and it means something heavy. It's hard to carry. It's a burden. And so we see this message that Nahum has. It's heavy. It's hard. It's a message of judgment. And to be honest, when I was up here reading the, the scripture reading, in my head, as I was reading one, I was thinking, don't mess up. But two, I was thinking, man, why did you pick this? This is kind of kind of heavy. You know, it's like, ugh, kind of takes the air out of the room. And so we see that this is a heavy message, and it says, finishing out the verse, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. And so Nahum's name actually means comfort. So we do a lot of, we're talking about a lot of judgment here on Nineveh, but the, the book is really about God comforting his people. And Nahum's name means comfort. And he's given this vision to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of the empire of Assyria. So we had Egypt for hundreds of years, the world's superpower. 
dominating the world, but they're on the decline. And now the Assyrian Empire is on the rise. They've been the world's superpower for some time. Social media would say they're trending up. They are the power, and that's who name's talking about. And uh, I think the date is somewhere between, and a lot of people agree with me, I didn't make this up, is 663 B.C., between there and 612 B.C. And the reasons for, in chapter 3, Nahum talks about the fall of an Egyptian city called Thebes. And we know historically that city fell at that date. So he's writing after that date sometime. But as you read through the book, he's talking about the future fall of Nineveh. And we know historically that fell in 612. So he's writing somewhere in between there. I kind of think he's writing during King Manasseh, and I'll explain that when we get to verse 12. But that gives you an idea of when he's writing. So let's get into the heavy message. Verse 2, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful, and the Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. And like I said, when I read this, I think, well, this isn't the comfortable God I like in the New Testament, you know, Jesus and love and grace and forgiveness. That sounds kind of scary. And so what do we do with that? Especially when it says the Lord, he's jealous. I thought the New Testament said, let's not be jealous. Doesn't James 3.16 say where there's jealousy and selfish ambition exists disorder in all evil things? So how can Nahum call God jealous and God still be God? And so to answer that question and to give us a little context of Nahum, I just want to talk real quick about who God is in his name. His name here, all caps, Lord, is Yahweh. It comes from the Hebrew word Hayah, which means to exist exist or to be. He just is. And the most famous place, I think, where he introduces himself as Yahweh is to Moses, chapter 3 of Exodus at the burning bush, right? And he tells Moses, hey, this is who I am. Now you go back and you get my people and you tell them who I am. And Moses says, well, what's your name? What do I say when I get there? He says, when you get there, say, I am sent you. I am Yahweh. And it's just like the bush. Did the bush burn up? I don't know why we call it the burning bush, because the bush didn't burn. But it didn't burn because the fire didn't need fuel. It didn't need the bush to burn. Yahweh's self-existing. He just is. He has always been, and he will always be. He is. And so what's the very first thing that God's people learn about their God when Moses gets back to Egypt? It's that he fights for his people. He says, Pharaoh, let my people go. He said, no. Boom, plague. Nile's blood. He says, you want to let my people go now? No. Boom, plague. Here's some frogs. You ready to let my people go? No. Boom, plague after plague after plague, punch after punch after punch, until he brings one of the gods of Egypt, Pharaoh, to his knees at the death of his firstborn. And Pharaoh says, get out. And God takes his people out. But then Pharaoh chases after them, right? And Pharaoh's got God's people pinned in at the Red Sea. There's nowhere to go. Their back's against the sea. They're outmatched. They're outnumbered by the Egyptian army. They've been slaves their whole life, not warriors. What are they going to do? What does God do? What does Yahweh do for his people? He fights for his people. He parts the sea, and they pass through on dry ground. And he takes out the army behind them. Yahweh fights for his people. It's one of the very first things he teaches his people is that he fights for his people. And I don't know if you've caught this, but over and over again, I keep calling them his people. And this is how Yahweh gets to be jealous because he's jealous for what is rightfully his. This is different than the kind of jealousy we talk about in the New Testament 
So God's jealousy is more of a zeal, a passion for what is his. These are his people. He's passionate about them. He's zealous for them. He's made a covenant with them. And he's going to own up to that covenant. He's going to protect them. Sinful jealousy is kind of envious. What is not really ours, but we want it. We kind of lust after things that's not ours. And I have to say, like a month ago, I'm at this mega church in Dallas at a youth conference. And I'm sitting in this youth room. I'm in there for about five seconds. And the youth room is bigger than this room. And I'm looking around at everything. I'm like, man, that's cool. Whoa, that's really cool. And then it turned into, why don't we have that? How come we don't get that? Why can't we do this? And it, like that, it took five seconds to go from looking at things that are good ideas, and that's, that's not bad, to an attitude of envy, of jealousy. And that's wrong. Because what you're saying is, God, what you've given me is not good enough. I want more. And that's wrong. We should be content with everything that God's given us. So Yahweh's zealous for his own people. He passionately fought for them against the Egyptians. And here in Nahum, we're going to see he still fights for his people. But what about the Ninevites? Does God not love the Ninevites? Of course God loves the Ninevites. When I say Nineveh, what prophet do you think of? Jonah. Yeah, thanks. And JB is going to teach on Jonah here, I think next week starting. It's a great plug. You see how I did that for the boss? (laughs) But spoiler alert, chapter 3, verse 5, Nineveh believes in God, and he relents from judgment. And in verse 2 of chapter 4, at the end, Jonah writes, You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness. He says, You are slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. And this was a popular Hebrew phrase throughout the Old Testament. Here's some places by different authors over the course of hundreds of years. People said this about Yahweh. And look at verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. Is that what yours says? No. It says the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Nahum does something kind of different. I don't know if he meant to do this, but it's pretty clever. The Ninevites experience the loving kindness of God. They believed the message. They had the message. But over some point throughout the hundred plus years between Jonah and Nahum, the message was lost. People rejected it. They stopped telling their kids. And so the message was lost, and they went back to their evil ways. They went back to worshiping their idols. And this is kind of a heads up to parents and even our nation. All research shows, all of it, that the number one influence, spiritual influence in a child's life is his or her parents, not the youth pastor. Now, I can teach them really cool stuff about the Bible, and I do, but they're watching you, and I can show them all kinds of stuff in the Bible, but they're looking to you to see if it's all real. And if it's not real in your life, then they're not going to see a need for it in their own life. You are the number one spiritual influence in their life. So at some point, the truth was lost in Nineveh, and it wasn't passed on to their children. And so now we see God set. We see Yahweh ready, and we see them about to experience his great power. Verse 3 finishes out, And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In a whirlwind, a storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. When it says his way, that's talking about how he fights for his people. Uh, The net translation says he marches out to battle, as a raging storm. It's trying, Nahum's trying to show how God fights. 
He's a force for his people. Um, I don't know about y'all. You remember last Monday? I don't know if you were in your backyard like me taking pictures of a tornado, but I was. Here's my picture I took. You can't even see the tornado, but you see enough to know that's a force. You don't want to be in that thing's way. And then here's a picture that was taken from our church. You can see right there. I mean, that thing is powerful. And the meteorologist on TV said it's weak. This is a weak tornado. It's an F1. It's weak. It's nothing. But who here wants to stand in that thing's way? Who wants to go up against that force? This was taken by Charlene. I mean, the thing is coming down her road. Doug's saying, get inside. And she's like, I'm going to take a picture. And I asked Doug and Charlene before uh, this morning, I said, were you shaking? He's like, man, I, he, he kind of retold the story. He's like, I'm, I'm getting chills just talking about it. Being in the way of a weak storm brings chills. Can you imagine being in front of an F5? Or what about the force that is Yahweh? And that is what Nahum's trying to picture. He says, uh, Yahweh is a force, and you don't want to stand up against him. And so he explains what kind of force Yahweh is. Look at verse 4. He rebukes the sea. He makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon wither. So what he's saying is Bashan and, and uh, Carmel and Lebanon, they were in the northern parts of Israel. It's where they got a lot more rain. It was fertile. It was lush. There's a lot of water there. He's saying God dries it up. It's no match for him. And the rivers, he dries those up too. And even the sea is no match for Yahweh in his burning zeal and anger for for what is his. Yahweh is a force. Verse 5, mountains quake because of him, and hills dissolve. Indeed, the whole earth is upheaved by his very presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. There is no mountain too big enough or enough hills in his way. Not even the whole world can stop him. He is, a Yah- or he is Yahweh, and he is a force. Look at verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. Nahum asks a simple question. Who is a match for Yahweh? And the answer is no one. There's nothing in all of creation that is a match for Yahweh, for the force that is him. Yahweh is a force unmatched. For his people, Yahweh is a force unmatched, and he fights for his people. He fights for his people, Israel, but this force, Yahweh, he also fights for his children. He fights for you. The New Testament says when we put our faith in Jesus for eternal life, we become children of God. John 1.12 says that, but as many as received him to, to them, he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. When we put our faith in Jesus for eternal life, we have life that lasts forever. We are his children, and he fights for his children. Yahweh is a force unmatched, and he's a force who fights for you. So we've seen this first section, the heavy message of judgment. We've seen who Yahweh is, that he is a force unmatched. So we see the next section, the good message of comfort. Verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. The Hebrew word for good is tov, and it has the idea of pleasant. So 
If it's good to eat, it's pleasant on the tongue. If it's good to see, it's pleasant on the eyes. Yahweh is good. And so you can imagine being in the fight, and then you see Yahweh coming to help you. He's a sight for sore eyes. He's pleasant on the eyes. And we have some parallelism going on in this verse. It says, Yahweh is a stronghold, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Stronghold and knows. Knows has the idea of protects. He protects those who take refuge in him. Yahweh is a stronghold and a protector. So let's see in verse 8 how he protects his people. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the sight, and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. This isn't figurative. This is literal. When Nineveh fell, 612 B.C., the king of Babylon, Nabopolazar and the Medes, they diverted the Tigris River into the wall of Nineveh, and they knocked the wall down using the river, and they flooded the city. This is how they took the city. And they made a complete end of Nineveh. Verse 9, whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. There's two ways you can look at distress will not rise up twice. They can't talk twice. Defeat, they'll be defeated so badly, there's not going to be a rematch. It's done. No rematch. Another way you can look at it is that the city of Jerusalem will not be surrounded again. So in 2 Kings 18 and 19, we have Assyria surround Jerusalem. And God delivers his people. He fights for his people and saves them miraculously. I'm just going to read two verses from there. It's 19, verses 35 and 36. It says, And then it happened that night that the angel of Yahweh went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and he went home. He lived in Nineveh. He got out of there because Yahweh is a force unmatched. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. So distress will not rise up twice. Either way you take it, the point is this. Yahweh is a stronghold and he's the protector. Verse 10, like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble. Anyone here ever hit your golf ball into a thorn bush? I'm looking at Garrett. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thorns are a defense. Try and get your hand in there. The thorn, but the fortress is not easily penetrated, but it's no match against fire. It's nothing against fire. It's outmatched. And it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to figure out who's going to win the fight between a skilled fighter and a drunk guy. I'm going to put my money on the skilled fighter. And so what he's saying here is Nineveh is outmatched and they're outskilled by Yahweh. Verse 11, from you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. And a counselor can be translated as like a military strategist, a general. It's a wicked general. He's plotting his angle, his attack on God's people. Verse 12, here Yahweh turns and he talks to his people and he comforts them. It says, though they, the Ninevites, are full strength and likewise many, so although they've outmatched you and they've outnumbered you, even so, they will be cut off and pass away. None of us coming at you, but take comfort, for I have overcome them. I am a force unmatched, and I am your protector. And then he says, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. And the reason I, I kind of think Nahum is somewhere around King Manasseh's reign is because King Manasseh was a horrible, evil dude. I mean, horrible. Did horrible things. He dies in chapter 21 of 2 Kings, and still, you're in chapters 23 and 24, and, and God's still saying, 
how, how upset he is with Judah because of all the things that King Manasseh did. I mean, he's been dead for three chapters, and God's still upset. He was a bad dude. And we know that under the covenant with his people, that he would allow foreigners to come in and discipline his people when they were disobedient. And so he allowed affliction on his people for the disobedience so that they would come back to obedience. And here, in verse 13, he's saying, So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you. I will tear off your shackles. The yoke bar and the shackles are used to enslave. Yahweh's removing the instruments of slavery. He's removing the Ninevites. Verse 14. Yahweh now turns back, or Nahum turns back and talks to the king of Nineveh. And he says, The Lord has issued a command. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. He's saying it's over. There's not going to be a descendant. There won't be an heir to carry on your name. The kingdom is done. I will cut off idol, an image from your house, the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. I think contemptible means accursed. He's prepared the grave because you're accursed. And this goes all the way back to Abraham. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And we see here, God's owning up to his covenant with his people. Go back to verse 7. Yahweh is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows or protects those who take refuge in him. Yahweh protects his people. And so we see in this section that Yahweh, for his people, he's a stronghold. He protects his people. And this is comforting because for you, his children, he's a stronghold in the day of trouble also. I know there are people here today who are in that season of trouble, and you're just hanging on, just hoping you can get through it. Just keep hanging on because Yahweh is a stronghold for you in the day of trouble. He protects those who take refuge in him. And so we see that we have Yahweh as a force unmatched in all creation. We see that he's a stronghold in the day of trouble. We also see that he's a deliverer. This last verse, verse 15, is called a Janus verse. This is where we get the word January. So January is that month, that time of the year, when we look back on the previous year, right? And then we also take time to look forward on the year to come. It's a transition this verse is the exact same thing. This verse looks back on chapter 1, on the judgment declared, and it looks forward to the judgment that will be dealt out. It's a transition verse. And look what it says. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. And the peace announced is a peace unmatched. The, the peace announced is a peace unmatched. It's the peace that results when God delivers his people. He does something kind of special here. He quotes Isaiah 52, 7, where Isaiah says the exact same thing about God's people. The peace that comes when he delivers them from their enemies. And then the New Testament, Romans 10, 15, the Apostle Paul does the same thing, but this time he equates it with Jesus. Jesus is the deliverer. Jesus is the one who saves. And so this is a, Peace unmatched. And JB taught this a couple weeks ago. We know there's peace with God and there's peace of God. Peace with God. Romans 5.10 says that 
We were enemies of God. We were alienated, hostile towards him. We had nothing to do with him. We were enemies. Romans 5 one says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We are brought into peace with God by faith. No more hostility. We are at peace. And it's unmatched because the peace is for eternity. If the peace didn't last for eternity, that's not much peace. It might be peace for a while, but it's not peace for eternity. We have eternal life. That's life that lasts forever, like it says. And that brings peace with God. Peace unmatched because the peace lasts forever. So if you're here this morning, you've been fighting, trying to fight your way to be good enough to go to heaven, let me tell you, you're not good enough. Give up. You're outmatched. Your name's not Jesus. He's the Savior. He was the force unmatched for you at the cross, paying for sin, conquering death and rising again for you, so that by faith, you put your faith in him for eternal life. He gives it to you. He is the force unmatched, not you. But when you believe in him, and he gives you that life that lasts forever, you have peace with God, and it's forever, and it's a peace unmatched. The second peace is peace of God. And this is the peace that we have throughout the Christian life, as we walk with Jesus. Philippians 4, 6 says, Be anxious for nothing but everything, prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God surpass all comprehension, regard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so he ends it like this, Celebrate your feast, O Jew, to pay your vows, for never again will the wicked come through. Celebrate your feast, pay your vows. Here's the idea. Celebrate your feast meant to celebrate who God is and what he's done for you. They celebrate like feasts like Passover. What was Passover? A celebration how God fought for his people and brought them out of Egypt. It's a time when they celebrated God. Pay your vows. They did things back then like, oh God, if you would deliver me, I will proclaim your goodness. And God would say, I delivered you. And then he said, okay, now pay your vow. Okay, you're good. We don't pay vows like this anymore. He's already been good. He's already delivered us by his grace. So now, by the mercies of God, Paul beseeches us to live lives as sacrificial for him. We live for him out of response for what he's already done. We proclaim his goodness. So to finish up, back to that story about, you know, my little leg problem that the doctors told me about. They told my parents that there's nothing they can do, no cure, and so they're outmatched. So they did the only thing they could do. They just leaned into Yahweh, the force unmatched, the stronghold, the deliverer. And the best I know, there's still no cure for my disease. I haven't checked in a while. But it doesn't matter, because when I was two years old, Yahweh fought for me and my parents. He was a force unmatched. He was a stronghold and a deliverer. The disease stopped when I was two, and in 30 years, it's never reared its ugly head again. Yahweh is a force unmatched and a stronghold and a deliverer for you also. I've put my trust in Jesus for eternal life. I know where I'm going. I have peace with God. And this story brings peace of God to me because I remember how he fights for me and fights for you. But hear this. Sometimes the victory isn't always what we want it to look like. In my case, in my story, it was. But if God said, I want you to be in a wheelchair and never use your limbs again, somehow that would have brought glory to God and he would have won the victory that way. 
So I'm not saying it's always the way we want it to end, but he always fights. It's his fight to fight, not ours. But it is our story to celebrate and to proclaim. And so in your application, as you can tell, I left it blank. Not because I don't want you to make application, but I left it blank kind of symbolically. I want, this is a place for you to write your story. Maybe God's already given you an incredible story. Write it down. Celebrate God for what he's done for you and proclaim his goodness to people in the community around you. Some of you are probably in the middle of the day of trouble right now, and maybe all you need to write right there is fight for me, Jesus. Fight for me, Jesus. And you just do it over and over again. And then there's some, like I know so many of you are thinking, I don't really have a good story. Well, hopefully you have at least this story, that you were dead in your trespasses of sin, alienated from God, hostile to God, outmatched by sin and death. But because of his great love and grace, he saved you, not on the basis of deeds which you've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. He was the force unmatched that conquered death. And when you put your faith in him for eternal life, he gives it to you as a free gift. And if that's the only story you have, you have the greatest story to celebrate and the greatest story to proclaim. In fact, if we are believers, all of us here, this is our story. This is our story to celebrate. This is our story to proclaim. And so, if anything, we should all write, I was outmatched, I was dead, but by faith in Jesus, I was made alive. 